This is the VIP Podcast, Virginia in Politics. Let's listen to host Chris Saxman explore the personalities and policies that connect the Commonwealth. The VIP Podcast is brought to you by the VCTA, Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the VCTA and Virginia Free or our sponsors. All right, Chris Saxman, back with you on the VIP podcast. That's Virginia in Politics, although we do have a VIP here in the studio with us today, Larry Roberts of the Sorensen Institute. Larry, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Uh, in your many roles in politics, you have found yourself now running the Sorensen Institute. Yeah. Give, give the audience a, an overview of what the Sorensen Institute was set up to do and does today. So, um, first of all, if I could just briefly say that... Um, uh, I served as counsel to Governor Kane uh, and chaired six successful statewide campaigns without a loss. So, um, you know, one of my messages is you can be civil and ethical and still victorious. So that is a big part of um, Sorensen's mission. Uh, what we do is we bring together people from across the partisan aisle, different regions, different races and ethnicities, different issue positions business sector, private, uh, public sector, nonprofit sector. Uh, we bring them together, they go through some intensive curriculum, and the idea is to learn how to work with people who aren't like you, who are different life experiences. And it's, it's largely, it's primarily Virginia focused, and it's primarily focused with the intersection of governing politics, business, nonprofit. And you, given your partisan background, mm -hmm. What has that been like for you to take off your hat ostensibly and say, you know what, for the greater good, mm -hmm. it's important to do X, Y, and Z? Well, I will say that the part of the reason I got the job is because I had a track record of working successfully across the aisle. So you and I actually worked on some things uh, for, I think it was called the Common Sense Caucus uh, of trying to eliminate state government paperwork. Cost-cutting caucus. Cost-cutting cost too, but paper has a lot to do with that, uh, at least it did in those days. Um, so... You know, working across the aisle on a whole range of issues, um, you know, and, and, and that's my temperament as well. So uh, when the job opened, uh, I'm an alum of Sorensen, so I, I knew a lot about it. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to uh, see what I could do to bring us back to maybe a sensible center or um, a place where we can have, com you know, even difficult conversations, but to do it in a way that's productive. Well, it, given the, I guess, partisan nature in which everyone uh, eventually finds themselves. It's, mm -hmm. it's pick a lane. It's A or B. It's yep. red or blue. It's, it's Republican or Democrat. There are 2,700 alumni in the, uh, the, the Sorensen network out there. You've been around since 93, 94 when you all started up. What ha what ha where is it now today? What, you, you, they started out bipartisan for the good of the cause in Virginia, working across the aisle. Tell us about where it is now and how you are able to forge or try to forge those cross-aisle conversations, the tough conversations we need to have in this country to get done what has to get done. So uh, we're really looking at public leadership in a broader way. So I think when, when Sorensen was started, there was an emphasis on preparing people to be good elected officials or uh, appointed officials. And um, the mission now is broader than that to say that you know a lot of people think Congress is broken. I think fewer people think the General Assembly is broken. Uh, but the leadership needs to start across the board. So uh, you don't necessarily need to be an elected official to have 
a positive impact on the conversations in your community. You know, if you go to a school board meeting and it's raucous, are, are you a voice of reason? Are you a person who can talk to the people who are upset and find ways to, to bring the conversation back to a, a productive way? So, you know, really teaching people how to be engaged uh, citizens or residents of Virginia um, in constructive ways. So, you know, we have local elected officials go through the program, state agency, personnel, um, you know, we, 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 did, we have, I don't know what the exact number in the General Assembly is anymore, but, you know, we've had like 30, at times 30 of the 140 have been Sorensen alums. Uh, but it, it's more about public leadership. If you're in a business, but you want to have a positive impact on the civic environment in your community or in the state, you will have the tools to be able to do that. And, and Sorensen, back when it was formed in the 90s and early aughts, uh, the brand that everyone aspired to was bipartisanship. We didn't have global competition. You know, it was a time of a generational change when the boomers came in after the election of Bill Clinton, uh, beating George W. H. W. Bush in 92. And you have this era of, hey, we can be fiscally conservative, uh, socially moderate, moderate mm -hmm. uh, and bipartisan. We're across the line. And after 9-11, I think you and I were of that era when you had to be from a political competition standpoint, mm -hmm. more bipartisan mm -hmm. than your opponent yep. to, to reach out across the aisle. You'd be seen that way. You really had to be showing your bipartisan chops. Right. Now, is that uh, politically attractive for candidates these days? Is that the reason why they come to Sorensen to beef up their bipartisan cred? Well, you know, I think that uh, often candidates are forced into those lanes more than they would want to be. Um, and so we're, we're not really looking as much as at who's going to be a candidate in the next election uh, as we used to, um, because at that point it was trying to get people who are about to go into public positions and give them these skills and ability to work in a bipartisan way. Now I think it's about how do we deal with the polarization that's out there. Um, and we don't ask people to check their beliefs at the door. You know, you're not coming here to be indoctrinated or to be persuaded to think differently than you do, but rather to think about the skills of how, how to be a better listener, how to understand the arguments of opponents um, so that you can see, is there common ground uh, at least to have conversations? Um, is there a way to structure community conversations so you have both inclusion, uh, but, uh, you know, real substantive um, conversations as well. So, um, you know, we're, I would say on the whole, we're just less focused on prepping candidates and more on people who want to see the tone of politics change, even though they have very firm partisan beliefs. So, you know, we, we have very active, assertive Republicans and Democrats um, in the classes. And I think that they always come away from it feeling like, you know, I learned some things that I didn't know I didn't know. Okay. Um, and so I can be more informed about how I approach these issues, even though my basic value structure and partisan beliefs uh, don't change in the process. When you look at both political parties, and you've, you and I have been in this world for a while, you can see some trends, uh, mm -hmm. some behavioral modifications over time. Where do you see both parties heading? Where do you see them going? And yeah. uh, I think that's a conversation that's overdue in this country. Well, one of the great things about this job, you asked about my leaving the partisan space. One of the great things about this job is I can look somewhat objectively at where both parties are. And uh, 
you know, I, I think it's interesting that in Virginia, you know, you can call it that it goes in eight-year cycles, or you can say that whoever's in the White House, the other party is in control in Virginia. Uh, but I think it really is, is that from Warner to Kane to McDonnell and then to Yunkin, um, you know, where you kind of had these party shifts, I think in each case the candidate decided that I want to go the pocketbook issues lane. Um, I want to speak to people where they are about public safety, about education, about transportation, um, health care, um, the environment, you know, the, that really people's day-to-day -day lives uh, need to be addressed by political leadership and the successful gubernatorial candidates have been the ones that have been able to latch on to that. So, you know, I, I don't see the parties necessarily buying into that uh, in local elections or general assembly elections. I think there is, this, there is sort of this, we need to get over the hump, get majority of plus one or more and then pass our agenda. I think it's, it's much more fiercely partisan at those levels um, where you've got competition, but at least at the leadership level in Virginia, I think it's pretty evident that people that you know, really try to speak to the, the daily lives as opposed to the cultural issues. Now, each of these candidates had their cultural positions, sure. but you know, in, in de designing their strategies and what lane they're gonna go in, you can clearly see you know, an effort to tap into people's concerns about the basics. Quentin Kidd at the Christopher Newport University's Wasson Center, uh, in some of my interviews, uh, comes back to this notion or idea or reality that Virginia really isn't a blue or a red state. It's a moderate state. Right. And to your point of the, the previous administrations and gubernatorial uh, successes, they've, they've pretty much stuck to, uh, we're not too scary lane. Right. We, we, we recognize that this is a suburban state. Uh, people want their roads to be you know, well-managed. They want good schools. They want good colleges. They want their core services to work well. And they don't want to jerk the, the wheel too far to the right and too far to the left. Has, has that been your experience too? Yeah, and I think uh, certainly at, at the statewide level. Um, you, know, you could argue in different districts that, sure. that maybe that's not the, the, the key strategy. But, but at the statewide level, and, you know, <clears throat> you're right to focus on suburbs. Uh, when I chaired the Kane campaign, <clears throat> we identified nine suburban jurisdictions that had been Republican for many years, and we targeted those jurisdictions talking about pocketbook issues. So in Albemarle, Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, Loudoun, Prince William, and we ended up winning eight of the nine jurisdictions that we targeted. Uh, and at that time, one of the big issues was suburban sprawl. And was this 2005? This was 2005. Uh, Jerry Kilgore, Attorney General, sitting Attorney General versus Lieutenant Governor Tim Kaine. Right, Just right. Set, set the frame for Yeah, for and, and an election that most people assumed Jerry Kilgore was gonna win easily. He, he won a big victory in the attorney general race and certainly came in the favorite uh, in 2005. I don't think we went ahead in the polls until uh, October. Really? Yeah, yeah. So, what was the driving force in that shift in that campaign? I remember, I remember the closing argument Jerry Kilgore was making was on the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And I think Tim really turned it well mm -hmm. um, for him. But I also thought that the suburban strength and the, and the, was it the anti-war sentiment? Was it the, the anti-George Bush? part of the, the, the Virginia swing away from the national yeah. narrative? Well, if you remember, Mark Warner in 2001 ran a campaign really heavily focused on, on rural Virginia. Um, Tim Kaine was mayor of Richmond. That wasn't really going to fly as a strategy. So 
we were focused on suburban voters and, of course, you know, driving the base uh, turnout. But um, I think the turning points were um, a few. One was uh, Hurricane Katrina mm. was a metaphor for a concern about the competence of President Bush. Um, and I remember we were very hesitant about criticizing the president. And Kane doesn't criticize harshly, but... It's not his strength. Right. But, um, you know, after Katrina, there was this narrative that maybe the Republicans were not governing competently. Mm. So there was that piece of it. Um, there was also the piece that Kane just really hitting hard on, you know, homeowner tax relief, transportation, curbing sprawl, you know, education, you know, that started to really sink in. You, you have to run a lot of ads for this narrative to sink in. You've got to do a lot of retail politics. So that began to sink in. And then the third was that uh, Kane's counter to Kilgore's death penalty ads um, really swayed a lot of people that the Republicans had gone over the top on that issue. Um, and I think it was a very powerful issue and one that could have hurt us badly. But oh, there's very powerful ads the Kilgore campaign. Right? Yeah, and a little. This the first is, time I saw him, I was like, because I was on the I was on yeah, the ballot too. I'm like, yeah, whoa. Yeah. Well, you know, this is an with instance the, with the with the woman whose right, right. her husband was killed. Well, you had yeah, you had a, a a guy who said that you know Cain wouldn't even execute execute Adolf Hitler. You had you know a, a teary eyed widow of a police officer, um, and so they were very powerful ads. But there's a fine line between powerful and over-the-top unfair. Right. Right. And I think that certainly back then, newspapers were much more important, the editorial pages, and universally they criticized um, the ads. Um, and we had done a lot of research that our most effective response to that was Tim Kaine talking directly to camera about the faith values that drove his death penalty position. Right. And so, you know, I think it was a combination of things, but we saw the trends, but we literally did not go ahead until probably October 10th. Wow. So let's let's take that narrative mm -hmm. because I remember it well. Mm -hmm. I was a part of it mm -hmm. and governed with it and the Kane administration um, and you by extension. Overlay that construct to today's world of of politics going too far, yeah. over the topness, and that's one thing I, I would imagine Sorensen tries to tell you. It's 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 a very dangerous sword you play with in politics because you can go too far and you can cut too deep, yep. Yep. and it can hurt yourself. Yep. And that's the one thing that you always see with a majority in a trifecta. They always overreach mm -hmm. and they always get caught overreaching. But they're also told by their base, "We want you to overreach." This is what you ran on. This is what you told us you were going to do. And they're sort of caught there and recognizing, well, we got to do this. We really don't want to do this. It's going to hurt us in the polls or the ballot box. So where do you see today's Republican Democratic Party, not necessarily going over the top, mm -hmm. but what are the conditions that make them do this? Yeah. Uh, if I could just add one thing before we get into that, which is that a lot of people just view these, these as competing for suburban voters. But on these issues that we were talking about, you're really competing for voters generally. Um, so these pocketbook issues, I think, helped drive Youngkin's turnout in rural Virginia. Um, in Kane's case, uh, you know, a lot of uh, urban voters and rural voters uh, responded to some of the things that he was saying. You know, Donald Trump made inroads with blacks and Latinos. Glenn Youngkin made inroads with Asians, uh, Asian American voters. You know, these, the, the, it's not just about winning the suburbs. In oh, no, Virginia. no. I think, I mean, but there's 
three geographical differentiations. So yep. There's urban, suburban, mm -hmm. now exurban, but also rural. And we've pocketed ourselves geographically and it has become somewhat partisan, basically where we used to live. Now, when, in 2001, when I ran, a lot of my yards had Warner and Saxman sides. Right, right. That was 20 years ago. Yeah. Today, it's unheard of. Yeah, now, that, that, that does my, my, my signs back then were blue. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that would never fly today. That doesn't happen too much. Um, so, you know, where, where I see the parties stumbling is that feeling that I need to cater to the most extreme sides of my base. And, you know, what we hope in Sorensen is that you develop the backbone to be a leader who says, you know what, we need to govern for the best interests of the Commonwealth. And really, if we do go too far, there's going to be the boomerang effect because Virginia is not a blue state and Virginia is not a red state. Um, and so, um, you know, there is this, to the extent there are cycles in, in Virginia, it is that one party starts to feel like they've got the keys to the castle and the other side becomes a hungry minority and there's enough of a shift in the electorate that um, you know, the hungry minority often becomes the majority, but then the temptation is always to say, we don't know how long we're going to have the majority, so let's push as hard as we can to get, you know, these 10 things we ran on and these things that our base wants, let's, you know, push them through aggressively. We don't care if it's 51-49 or 80-20, we just want to get it done. And I do think that leads to a boomerang effect. Um, it leads to court challenges, it leads to an energized opposition, um, and so your victories may be ephem ephemeral if you're pursuing them on just that, let's get a, part of a, a slim majority and then push an aggressive agenda. So, you know, what we talk about at Sorensen is, can you build sustainable change so that if you do get a 60-40 vote or a 65-35 vote, it's less likely to become the thing that the opposition runs on. Right. And uh, so, you know, can you find that common ground to allow you to maybe get 90% of what you want or 80% of what you want, but not fire up the opposition? Yeah, we were, when I was in the house, there was a, we, we had an annual toad we had to swallow. It was something we didn't want to do, mm -hmm. but it wasn't going to jeopardize the majority, but we just thought, get this one out of the, out of the way. Mm -hmm. You know, a point has been made take it away from the opposition. Okay, it was called swallowing a toad. Mm -hmm. It seems today, though, that's just not going to happen. It seems like the, both parties are like, no, we're going to have everything we want, or you know, the ability for folks back home to run against us in nomination fights really propels uh, incumbents to do many things that are not in their best interest politically. Uh, long, and maybe long term for the Commonwealth, it might not be the best for the or their party or their party. It gets it gets their the brand gets away from them. They mm -hmm. try to rein in and they can't all of a sudden. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll give you an example um, where the parties came together, not necessarily at the same time, but regional transportation funding. Uh, when Kane ran for governor, he I think strongly hinted that he was going to seek additional transportation revenues. The Republicans in the House particularly disagreed and. When he asked, called for taxes, said, Kane's a liar. I remember that bumper sticker. Um, and, uh, but he, he pushed through a transportation package with Republican votes. You know, we, we put in some elements that the Republicans had been pushing for years. And, uh, you know, we got a successful package through. 
um, that provided for regional transportation funding. It required, if you remember, local elected officials to, to bite the bullet on the tax increase. And ultimately, the Supreme Court of Virginia threw out our program. And I will never forget that the author of that opinion, his first opinion, was a justice that we had appointed <laughs> the Supreme Court. And he wrote a unanimous opinion throwing out our our major transportation Which package. I think underscores that just because they're nominated by a certain <laughs> right. political party, they don't get what they want. And I like an independent judiciary. That, yes, yes, I do. And he's now the chief justice of the Virginia Supreme Court. Um, and uh, But what happened was uh, Bob McDonnell wanted to pursue that when he became governor and to pursue it in a way that fixed the constitutional problem that we had with our package. And so, you know, and as you remember, Speaker Howell got on board and there was that famous ruling on germaneness on the House floor that we don't have to get into the details, but, but that became a Republican initiative that they had opposed when Kane first uh, proposed it in 2006. So, you know, I think that that has stood the test of time as a very good development for the Commonwealth, um, that Hampton Roads, Northern Virginia could raise their own taxes if they wanted to, to fund transportation projects. It's been so successful that Richmond asked and got authority to do that for the greater Richmond area. But, you know, it's a situation where because the parties work together over an extended period of time to, to sort this out and figure out how can we be successful at something that might be a little off-brand, um, you know, it, it, it has survived court challenges. There weren't really many of them. Um, and I think most people feel like it's leading to some real successes and the Commonwealth will soon have another tunnel. Uh, going over to Hampton Roads right, from right. Hampton um, as one of the projects. So you can work together and get things done across the aisle still in today's environment um, without um, triggering. Primary challenge is going to happen no matter what you do. So it's almost like just get over it. You're going to yeah. get challenged. We're going to. You might as well get. <laughs> we are in an environment where a lot of people wake up and look in the mirror and see a legislator. Mm. Um, and, and also there's a generational shift. There is a demographic shift. You know, people feel like, you know what, there is not a person of this certain ethnicity in the right. General Assembly. Right. I really should change that. Right, right. Um, is that all, is it, I want to say passe, is it, or just have we, have we gotten to the point at which those aren't determining factors anymore in elections? Demographics? All of it. I mean, like, you know, we have Republicans who supported tax increases and Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. They get reelected. Yeah. Uh, you have Democrats who, you know, will vote a certain way uh, against the party and, you know, what are seem to be doctrinaire positions that you can't touch. Uh, someone who's, you know, relatively pro-life or mm -hmm. uh, supports more of a school choice orientation, uh, something that goes against the grain. They, send the, they suddenly get, come back. Well, what do you think is the secret sauce of incumbents who can vote against their party, you know, at those yeah. times and return. Well, I think one one success that I see is that they speak very effectively about issues that the base is in sync with them. So whether you want to call it red meat or however you want to call it, they speak to issues very forcefully that the base cares about. And so that gives them some leeway on other issues to tack a little bit uh, more moderately than their, their, than their base. Um, another key to success is constituent services. Um, you know, it, visibility. You know, if you're in the community, you know, weekend after weekend, 
um, and people are seeing you and you've got a great newsletter and you've got, you know, aides that are, um, you know, doing the good constituent work, um, you know, people do have that feeling like this is my legislator. Right. Uh, and then there's also the incumbents do have an advantage of name recognition. Um, and that is hard to overcome. You know, a lot of first time candidates, uh, and I'm not saying people shouldn't run, um, you know, if they want to knock off an incumbent, but when you are going against an incumbent, you sometimes underestimate just how much that person is known in the community right. and how hard it is to get the public's attention. You know, I, I often have wondered, well, why don't people respond to this? Uh, and it seems to make so much sense. But, you know, people need to get familiar with, comfortable with, you know, know people or issues uh, before they're going to throw support behind it. So it's a process and uh, that makes it difficult to, to, to knock off an incumbent, but certainly not impossible. Because well, you have to get to 50% and you can get 20% of the people who are really ticked off. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of people out there who will generally like the incumbent for a number of reasons. They, they've met him, mm -hmm. her. Uh, they like their positions. They have the, the associations, whether it's the sheriff's association, the teachers. My daughter the got into college with a letter of recommendation from the. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've been there for a while. You, you, you know, they, they touch constituencies and to your point about constituent service. And I met uh, out in my district in Short Pump. We have an open seat and I've met with candidates on both sides of the aisle. I've had coffee and or lunch uh, with them. And uh, the, the, one of the candidates for the, for, for the Democratic Party was telling me how the uh, the. the the favorite, if she if she sees it that way, uh, has a lot of the, the uh, people within the party already lined up. The establishment, the establishment so locked up. I hate yeah. that term, but you know, <laughs> it's, it, it is a it is a nuance. Uh -huh. And 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 she said, "Well, what about that?" I'm like, "There's a lot of other Democrats mm -hmm. in that district mm -hmm. who will come out and support you. Have never met that guy and never will meet that guy. Yeah. Now, if he's an incumbent, it's a whole different construct right. because he's right. emailing, he's sending out mail. He's to so your point, it's not easy to transfer your likability or your popularity or your uh, sense within the community. I mean, it, it, endorsements matter, but they are not determinative mm -hmm. um, because it, just because somebody likes you does not mean they are going, especially with the, the current environment and people being very skeptical about government, they're not going to just say, okay, well, Senator so-and-so says this is the right person. So, that, that it's not going to be lockstep like that. We we are not in the bird organization. No, it's it's a validator, not a not a not a closing argument. Exactly. Is that, is that fair? I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, like uh, last week at the RNC meetings, uh, Donald Trump's endorsements of the down ticket offices, none of them won. Yeah. And in the general election in the midterms, his chosen candidates or his endorsed candidates of Kari Lake and Dr. Oz and. Mm -hmm. um, Herschel Walker and some of the others didn't do well. Right. And so does, but it still doesn't make the sale. It, yeah, but it was interesting that he was able to um, dictate a lot on the, the nomination. On the nomination phase. But then, right. you know, he, he was endorsing candidates who stumbled in the, the general election. Yeah. Is that in, in, the, in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, um, the nomination fights this year are going to be pretty intense. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been... In the Senate, there's about 17 really intense fights. Some of them are, that are listed that have uh, incumbents in the same district. Right. Gonna, they're going to work their differences. But 17 districts right now are going to have knockdown dragouts for the most yeah. part. Where do you see the parties going 
um, and how are they going to play out in not in those particular races, but generally speaking, because you've been in round of politics, you, you said you watch and you see what's going on. You see these candidates coming in, their prospective candidates at the Sorensen Institute, which you've trained a number of years, 2,700 alumni. Where do you see the parties going? Um, I think that the, um, you know, there's tensions within both parties, um, and I don't think it, it, it can be determined right now where they're going to end up. But, you, you know, on the Republican side, you've got sort of the, the Main Street business um, constituency, and then you've got the very much populist um, constituency, and, you know, which side wins out there, and will people that lose that want to go to the other party? Um, you know, on the Democratic side. And will they be welcomed? Yeah, yeah. Is the Chamber of Commerce going to be welcomed? Yeah. By, I mean, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has basically been kicked to the curb by the McCarthy Republicans up in the House Republican Conference. But the Democrats are not wholly embraced. No, so, so where do they go, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, hopefully they go to a place where they're picking candidates and not parties. There you go. That would be a welcome development sort of across the board. Um, but on the Democratic side, you know, you really have a, a generational tension. Um, you've got um, people who've been office, in office a long time, um, and you've got uh, a more diverse, younger um, cohort coming up. Um, and young Democrats across the board, very skeptical about government. Um, and so you've got an older generation of Democrats who look at government as the solution, and you've got a younger group that doesn't like the cultural positions of the Republican Party or feels they're not welcoming in terms of diversity, which is important to young people. Um, but you know they don't necessarily like the 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 current leadership um, in the General Assembly. Um, we saw this generational sh shift in Congress, uh, and that's not a criticism of the of the legislative leadership. I think that the leadership on both sides have done some you know, remarkable things for the Commonwealth. But there is this feeling like we don't think government's working and it needs to look more like our generation looks. So you've got those tensions on the Democratic side. You know, I do think ultimately on the Democratic side, this generational shift will uh, prevail. Um, you, know, you see that in the House leadership uh, on Capitol Hill um, with Hakeem Jeffries um, taking over the the leadership there with a diverse slate, uh, you know, with him. Um, I don't know where the Republican side um, ends up. Um, you know, it, it really is, you know, low taxes, less regulation. You know, that has been a powerful driver for um, uh, for business Republicans. But, that, but as you said, the business, um, the more the fiscal conservative wing of the party, free market, seems to be drifting away from the power center yeah. that is more populist, nationalist. Um, and, and where is that going to take the, the Republican Party yeah. into, uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journalist this week, cover story in the review section, about becoming the working class party in, in America now. Yeah. And, you know, uh, non-college educated um, across the board in all demographics, all, you know, all, um, you know, in races, blacks, Hispanics, whites, they're, the non-college educated folks are drifting and some, some you know, so on the whites, uh, white voters are definitely moving in that direction, more so in the blacks and Hispanics as it's coming along. Both parties so, have huge opportunities though. Let's know. talk about those. Where, yeah. where do you see the democratic uh, opportunities in the future? Well, I, I think as long as Republicans uh, 
take the hard lines they do on issues like abortion, immigration. Um, you are, and, and the immigration argument, not in and of itself, but what it conveys as a, you're not welcome here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think a lot of Democrats might agree with some Republican positions on immigration, but the overall impact of the argument is that it appears that Republicans don't want people like me here. Sure. So, so it's more of a tone? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if, if Republicans um, can find a way to talk about those issues that are less off-putting, and I think there are avenues to that, um, then I think a lot of people on the Democratic side um, are up for grabs um, who just want to see, um, you know, they're, they're just not as trusting in government solutions. Um, but, you know, the Democrats are attracting certainly the the more educated, and I don't mean this in, in a sense that they are better voters, yeah. but more educated Cal voters. More credentialed. Yeah, educated. more credentialed voters. Um, you know, they are, they've certainly been drifting toward the Democrats. Um, you do have a very diverse coalition of Democrats who just believe that Republicans don't like them. Um, and then will business leaders uh, who under Mark Warner drifted toward the Democrats and, and even with Kane um, we saw that as well. You know, will they start to back Democratic candidates with their money? There are already people on the Democratic side who think that Democrats are too corporatist. So it, it's it's a real mixed bag right now, and I don't know where it ends up, but it feels like the momentum on the Republican side is on the populist side, and it feels like the the you know momentum on the Democratic side is really still that uh, women and people of color. Uh, feel like the Republicans are not welcoming to them. Now, are Republicans making inroads among certain of those constituencies? They are, but when you're going from 4% to 8%, you know... Well, in that, close elections, that really matters. It, it matters, but not if you're trying to build a governing majority. Um, you, you have to... You, you can't afford to, you know, lose 95% of African Americans and you know, 70% of Asian Americans and 65% and of, of Latino Americans. I mean, you can't, you can't the math, get there. The math just isn't there. Right. But the math has to be there for Democrats by the same token. Well, um, I to, think... To win, they have to have those percentages that they've basically built their majorities on. Yeah. On the other hand, though, if Democrats really do show that they are supporting the working class Americans, then they will make inroads into the numbers that Republicans are running up in in rural Virginia. You know, rural Virginia was Democrat for a long, long time. Long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, Republicans brought a message that resonated very well there and turnout numbers for Yunkin, you know, were, were really high. Um, but each party, you know, finds ways to cut into the, we're, we're a two-party system, and that means that it's very hard for one party to sustain a, a majority for, you know, I mean, how often have we had the trifectas nationally or in Virginia since the demise of the Byrd organization? So both parties kind of figure out we either want to be true to certain ideals or we want to be in office. And they typically choose winning office. And suddenly, eventually, well, eventually. That, the, the, the premise of the book I'm reading right now called The Left and Right, the, the myth of the, the American political spectrum and how it harms America, mm -hmm. uh, because we ebb and flow on these issues. I mean, the corporatists versus the populists versus the working class. Uh, I think some of the social issues really are in deeply embedded. 
in the in in the both parties, and they tend to overreach in uh, their 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 need to retain those voters. And I, I I just see a vibrancy moving away from some of these key elements. I talked to the Virginia School Boards Association yesterday with Bob Holsworth, and they talked about taxes. I'm like, I don't know how much of a visceral issue that is for Republican voters. I don't know how many, how many new votes you get as sure, a result. Certainly, of that. debt. Hasn't seemed to be for the that majority been, of either party. The, the you know the the ninety two Perot phenomenon is, right. is is dead and gone. Right. God rest his soul. But that we will we will have a debt limit fight. But if you polled, but does that people, move voters? I right. don't know. I just don't. Yeah. I just I don't see it the way yeah. it used to be twenty years ago. Those were bedrock core fights. Yeah. And I think we're getting into granular fights now. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But, you know, um, we've been talking a lot about politics and Sorensen is about leadership as well. So if I can do a plug before let's, we, let, no, let's go back we to wrap Sorenson up, because because we've got all these issues and how do you cross those bridges and mm -hmm. get to the people to become, look, in order to get something done, if you want to get something done in politics, not that you have to. Lord right. knows people get reelected without getting anything done. Mm -hmm. uh, Sorensen, leadership, reaching across the aisle, bipartisanship, civil, uh, civil, civil discourse. Um, when you close the doors and you say, okay, class, mm -hmm. does it happen? Yeah, it does. Um, I, I find it remarkable. Um, you know, w will that last is always my question. You know, when they leave the Sorensen program, how much of this will stick? But when you're in the program itself, it's really pretty remarkable to see people, first of all, people that apply to a program like Sorensen bring a certain mindset to it. They want to be leaders. Um, and to watch them learn how to work with people that just have different life experience than they do, and to see the willingness to understand why the other side feels the way that they do, even though I'm not going to change my view, I can have a, a better conversation with you about that issue, which means we might be able to cooperate more easily on another issue if we don't hate each other. Right. <laughs> you know? right. If we can talk to each other without like really setting right. teeth on edge. So it, 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 it really is rewarding to, um, to watch that. So we bring it, we have a high school program for um, juniors, seniors, uh, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. Um, it happens in the summer. And students really want to learn about Virginia history. Uh, a deeper dive. They really want to learn about the levers of government. Um, what, how can you be effective in inter interacting with government, whether as an elected official or not? Um, you know, just really eager, wide-eyed, idealistic, you know, a, a real great group to work with. Um, then we have a college program where we study in depth. Uh, one year we did transportation policy. Another year we did gubernatorial leadership during policy crises. Um, we're looking now at, at um, gubernatorial elections. Um, and uh, that's a, that's a, a five-week program. We have an emerging leaders program, which is roughly people first 10 years out of college, mm -hmm. inspired by Governor McDonald, who wanted a place to train his uh, young staff members. Okay. And Sorensen said, well, we can't do it just on a partisan basis, but certainly we'd welcome having your staff people, and we just have to open it up to the broader public. Uh, and you know, Governor McDonald put out a press release from the governor's office about it. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of, of that program and his role. And um, he and Bob Gibson were able to, to square that circle. Um, they meet three sessions. Um, they do a major public policy project that often turns into legislative proposals in the General Assembly. 
And then our political leaders program travels to nine different regions of the Commonwealth from March to December. Um, age range from 20s to 70s, but the, the kind of sweet spot is 10 years out of college and up. Um, and uh, we have business leaders. We have, uh, we have this year we had the, the chair of the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors. We have had legislators go through. Rich Anderson and Mark Keem uh, went through together one year, so we're looking for another pair right. to, to go through together. Um, and uh, so it, it really is about, um, you know, how do we look at the nuances of politics? How do we look at the nuances of constituencies? Um, how do we how do we breed cross-regional understandings, cross-racial understandings, cross-partisan understandings, and, and how, do we, how do we fight this polarization that we see all around us? Last question. Yeah. Um, what is, for a Sorensen applicant, mm -hmm. you throw them all in the, in the pile, if you do a word bubble, word cloud, and you figure this is, this is the one thing that they all, that they all get. What's the one thing they all get? Uh, openness to others. Um, you know, everybody who applies tends to be pretty accomplished, whether it's in their high school or sure. um, as young leaders or as, as uh, more experienced leaders. So, you know, we look at it and say, are you so set in your ways that this is a waste of your time and everybody else's? Or are you willing to come and be an active listener to engage? And that's how you find your pool of yeah we really do because you know we get a lot of talented people apply um, I can always use more Republicans and more people outside the urban crescent so that's a little ad there they would have an easier path to get into the into the program um, but it's really about um, you know you have to be accomplished letters of recommendation help so that we know who trust these people um, but uh, you know people who want to build trustworthy institutions so that people have more trusted institutions, because I think that's very important for our future, that institutions earn that trust. Because if, if everybody's doing everything all on their own and you've got 8 million Virginians, right. that's not really a formula for success, but institutions have to earn that trust. And we want to get people who can become leaders in those institutions. Why do they apply? Trust. What do you think, why do you apply? I mean, next to last question. Yeah, yeah. My other last question. Yeah, I think that it's a very strong network. Um, you know, people in Capitol Square, you know, I have my Sorensen pin on my lapel. If you walk anywhere on Capitol Square, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt that you're, you're, you're somebody worth listening to. Okay. And so that's a big thing for people who want to. It's a good brand. Yeah, it's a great brand. We have, you know, a lot of lobbyists go through our program, a lot of legislative aides. Um, you know, it's a way to connect people. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, And how does someone apply or seek more information? What's the website? Uh, org, and it's Sorensen with an E-N at the end. Um, it, people think it's Ted Sorensen, who was J John F. Kennedy's speechwriter, but it's actually his brother Tom Sorensen oh, okay. who endowed the Institute, advised Bobby Kennedy and George H.W. Bush. Uh, their father was a Republican Attorney General of Nebraska, uh, and they all moved east. <laughs> That's something else. Yeah. Sorensen with an E, institute.org. Larry Roberts, Executive Director? Director. Uh, director of uh, the Sorensen Institute. 
based out of Charlottesville mm -hmm. at the Center for Politics in Virginia, the University of uh, We are part of the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service. Weldon Cooper. Um, so I'm based in Charlottesville, but always traveling around the I'm state. I'm sure you are. Well, Larry Roberts, great to have you on the VIP podcast, our latest VIP, not a very important person, but he is. He's also on Virginia in Politics podcast, available on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple. Thanks for joining us.